Welcome to Afterlives with Kara Cooney, in which we discuss ancient Egyptian history and relevant current events that we think will be of interest to our audience. I am Kara Cooney, and I'm a professor of Egyptology at UCLA. This podcast is separate from my teaching and research roles at UCLA. In recent years, I've become active in communicating with the general public about the history of ancient Egypt through lectures, interviews, social media, books, and guest appearances. This podcast is my opportunity to take the kinds of deep dives into history that are not always possible in academic formats. Recording? Yay! Oh no. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Hello, everyone. Hi. We have a special visitor, a special guest today. Super exciting. Marissa Stevens, Dr. Marissa Stevens. Hello, everybody. Yay, we've known you for so long. What, like 10 years, 11 years? When did you start it? 10 years in September. Oh, our 10 year anniversary. It's so exciting. exciting. Yeah. So sweet. So, we have Marissa here today to talk a little bit about dissertation and some article and articles in particular um, that you recently published. So, we'll, we'll go into that. And then I also want to talk a little bit about your post PhD life. Sure. Because yeah. everyone needs to know how to survive post-PhD life. Because, you know, getting you think, oh, my God, the dissertation is going to kill me. And then you finish and you get your PhD and you feel you've achieved everything. And that's yeah. when shit goes down. Yeah. No, it's not to devalue anything that you do as a grad student. But when people say grad students, life is kind of easier mm-hmm. than post-graduation life, in many ways it kind of is. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's grueling work to write that dissertation, for sure. But uh Post-dissertation life is ruling in many other different ways. You don't have the institution to keep you safe. Exactly. You don't know what especially to do, where to go. Especially when you're on the job market. Yeah. You don't know where you're going to end up. Yeah. That can be in some ways scarier than doing mm-hmm. the prospectus and defending and all of that. Because yeah. we know how to do school. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's real life that we have problems with because we felt this calling to go into this institution and be safe, like a nunnery yeah, of sorts. and just stay there forever right so how do you deal with the real world and what is that like these are important things to talk about i love it marissa stevens is the assistant director of the port of the center for the study of the iranian world and we'll talk about that at the end Mm -hmm. um trained as an egyptologist who studies the materiality social history and texts of the third intermediate period and late period she completed her phd at ucla in the department of near eastern languages and cultures woohoo Combining art historical and linguistic approaches, her research interests focus on how objects can solidify, maintain, and perpetuate social identity, especially in times of crisis when more traditional means of self-identification are absent. So cool. So tell us a bit about your academic background and how you got into Egyptology. What you we always say this question stupid because it's like why ask each other like why do you like Egypt blah 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 but. No, I, I think it's a good question. I I always tell people that I just never grew up. Because if you had asked me when I was like eight years old, mm-hmm. I would have told you I wanted to be an Egyptologist. And um, fortunately, I had very supportive parents and teachers that always just said, okay, if that's what you want to do, great, wonderful, figure out what you need to do to make that happen. Yeah. Um, so they were always very realistic and never just pie in the sky, sure, you can do anything you want. They were, from a very early age, saying, all right, figure out what you need. What languages do you need? What schools do you need to be looking at? What skills do you need to acquire? At what stages do you need to be looking into these things? Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I guess I slowly made it happen. I I took maybe a little bit more of a roundabout way of getting there because I went to a small liberal arts college 
That had no Egyptology. That, yeah. yeah. Did not have Egyptology. Did not have the hieroglyphs classes that undergrads can take when you go to a big Brown university. Or something, yeah. yeah, something like that. Um, so I majored in history and sociology, mm -hmm. which was very broad, but I think in hindsight, a very good thing mm -hmm. that I had a broad, a broad foundation to work off of. And then while I was an undergrad, um, I did get to study abroad at the American University in Cairo. Mm -hmm. So I kind of yeah, carved out my own, cool. yeah, like my own little niche with that. That's where I first learned hieroglyphs um, when I did a semester there. Uh, and then I did a master's at Chicago. Yep. Yeah, University of Chicago. Yep. You are very familiar with that program. Mm -hmm. But yeah, we didn't actually meet there. Nope. because we were Did you overlap? Year. No. no. We didn't. We were mm -hmm. one year and then the next year. Um, but I did that before I moved out to Los Angeles, started the program at UCLA, and that took me six years. Mm -hmm. And I'm still here. <laughs> Even still after here. graduation. Never left LA. It's a good city. Yeah, I love yeah. it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's cool. Um, so, like, do you have any memories when you were little, when you were eight, mm. um, of, like, what drew you to Egypt, or did, did you see a movie, or what? I, you know, I feel like every kid goes through a phase where it's either, like, dinosaurs, mm -hmm. Egypt, yeah. astronaut, yeah. like, one of those kind of fields. Um and for me, it was always Egypt. I was the kid that checked out every book I could find mm -hmm. in that elementary school library about Egypt, uh, you know, and I kept kept going at it. Moving to your dissertation. <laughs> um, so your dissertation looks at the social functions of funerary papyri in Egypt during the 21st dynasty, focusing on the construction and maintenance of social identity in the Theban priesthood. What drew you to this topic? Why was it, oh, that's what I want to write my dissertation on? Yeah. It, what, I guess, gaps in the literature did you see? Yeah. So, I mean, I guess I should preface this by saying that Kara was my dissertation advisor when I was a grad student. And when I came, <laughs> yes, when I came to UCLA, I knew I was interested in identity mm -hmm. and questions involving, you know, identity and really how can we get to know the Egyptians better? Mm -hmm. Right. As people. Yes. To yeah. not turn them into data points, to not. Or objects, golden objects. Yes. Right? Yeah. To not fetishize them, but really get to know them more as people and their personal motivations and family motivations and all, all like all the type of messy stuff that we deal with. Yeah. Um, and people in terms of social display, which is what you work on. And how do people act when their child has a wedding? They kind yeah. of lose their shit and get all freaked out about certain aspects of the display yeah. who's invited what the dress is all, all of these things you did and they, they normally wouldn't care about all of a sudden become these massive things so how do people behave in those circumstances it's very interesting it says a lot about society so yeah and you can only assume that the egyptians felt the same way or yeah. had similar crises mm -hmm. you know personal crises in the same way we do yeah. so that was always my interest but i didn't have a focus on how, how am I going to get there? How am yeah. I going to get to that type of information? Um, and so, obviously, you go to your advisor and you express that and you say, what can possibly be done? What did I say? <laughs> so, I said something? Yes, oh, my God. You gave amazing advice. Okay. I don't know. So, you obviously are... I have many conversations with many grad students and I don't remember, like, giving you... But I didn't, like, dole out your dissertation. Like, I didn't... No. 
Yeah, it was a while ago. Yeah. No, it was, no, it was 10, about 10 years ago. Yeah, 10 years it was a while ago. ago. First kind of... Okay, well, what did I say? Out. Okay, so <laughs> you really honestly oh, were God. on the coffins of the 21st dynasty. Yeah. Right? So you were working on all that and getting a good sense of who this Theban priesthood was. Mm -hmm. You know, you were really starting to untangle those types of family relationships through reuse and, you know, what you're seeing in that type of data set. And... So you encouraged me to look into something like that, a discrete data set, mm -hmm. but neither one of us wanted my project to be coffins, right? Because that's redundant. Yeah. I don't want to turn into another you. The you world don't. already has you. <laughs> don't need another and, and PhDs, in my opinion, should never be mini-me's of their advisor. Which, mm -hmm. So many Sometimes people do it. it. Yes. yes. And it's like, you don't want to just be like a offshoot of your... Many students are given dissertations. They are assigned right. them and told, this is what you will work on. Particularly in Europe, yeah. Yeah. where people apply for funding to work on a particular topic, whether it's of their own design or choosing or not. Mm -hmm. And so it, it gets pretty uh, prescriptive from the top mm -hmm. down. Yeah. But so you were telling me to, you know, try to find a similar project, you know, something that I could really invest myself in. And you were the one that mentioned these funerary papyri that kind of are part of the same funerary assemblages mm -hmm. of the coffins that you work with. And you had me read Andre Davinsky's catalog of that data set that was done in the 80s. Mm -hmm. And um, that was my whole assignment. Read it and tell me what you think. And so, yeah, at our next meeting, you know, I, I remember saying, like, I feel like, you know, the catalog needed to be done. This is amazing, exceptional work mm -hmm. to just see what's out there. But then there's a lack of synthesis yeah. with the material. Analysis. And, yeah. Deep diving. Exactly. And so I thought that there was more to be done. But my big hang up was I never thought I would ever be a language person. Right? <laughs> You're such a philologist, yeah, too. But I never saw myself like that. And these papyri are written in hieratic mostly. Yeah. There's a couple that are like cursive hieroglyph, but mostly they're in hieratic. Yeah. And I had not yet taken any classes in hieratic. And I swore I would never be good at something like that. And so, you know. You just told me, take the hieratic classes, see how you do, you know, and I, I kept taking the classes and I was interested. And so I kept signing up for them again and again. And I'm like, I just kept coming back to it. And I realized at some point, like, oh, I can do this. And it wasn't me teaching those classes. No. It was Yako Dilemon teaching yes. those. Yeah. And I remember the first class that I took on hieratic. He, he put up a text on a projector and said, all I want you to do is point out the signs that you see. And mm -hmm. he gave us a laser pointer. And I was so nervous and terrified. That laser pointer shook <laughs> and went all around the classroom. Like, I couldn't oh. even focus that little red dot on anything. Like, that's, that's so sweet. Oh. But after that, yeah. you know, it became easier and easier Start to the point where I'm it. like, yeah, no, I get this. Mm -hmm. So, Oh, how our egos are attached to this knowledge. It's, it's so, so crazy. Cool. Like the first time I went to the Met and I couldn't tell the difference between the 19th and the 21st Dynasty coffins and I sat on a bench and cried. Right, yes. To myself, no one saw me. Yeah. It was very private, like but weeping. Still, yeah. But it's so true. But yeah. anyway, so no, then... No. So, yeah. I mean, so then I, I guess I just kind of grew more comfortable with the idea of working with papyri. Mm -hmm. And you get a lot more information on the papyri in terms of family and mm -hmm. social organization, even temple titles and things like mm -hmm. that than you do on the coffins, which makes so much more. Yeah. And that makes sense, right? Because yeah. There's more space. A coffin's for an individual. It's yeah. for 
that individual to be idealized and Osirianized, and a papyrus is to contextualize that individual, give them family members, um, give them more extensive titles. You have more space to do yeah. it. It's more within the habitus of expectations to do it. So you, there's much, a lot more that you can learn. So yeah, so how, do, how are these papyri functioning? What's the purpose of them? And yeah, so what types of information do they hold? Yeah, I see them functioning on two levels primarily. First and foremost, these are religious texts. They're funerary texts. They are meant to... Are they not Book of the Dead? Or they they are. are. Yeah, they're Book of the Dead. Book of the Hidden Chamber, often called Omdawat, but I prefer Hidden Chamber. That's the actual, if you're translating uh -huh. it word for word, Omdawat just means that which is in the Duat, yeah. which is the Egyptian underworld. So that, that encompasses a whole range of texts. Mm -hmm. The Book of the Hidden Chamber is the one that specifically has those 12 hours of the night that the sun god has to traverse and like battles Apophis and all that good stuff. Books of the Earth, books plural right? Because there's several of them, the Book of Gates and the Book of Caverns, right? So that's primarily the type of uh, material that I'm dealing with. And then a whole bunch of weird cosmographic texts that haven't really been cataloged. I mean, weird ever. stuff, yeah. like weird, esoteric, weird like let me, like when people compete and they're like, I know, you know, this person in this band, or I know this professor mm -hmm. or whatever it is that people signal to each mm -hmm. other to compete, or I own this antiquity, or I own yeah. this amazing mm -hmm. thing. These Theban priests yeah. are signaling to each other their restricted knowledge. Yes, they're they're kind of like in-jokes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah right? It's like the ancient form of an in-joke. Or, or in pissing contests, yes. like, right? Yeah. 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 No, exactly. So that so, only they would know yeah. what yes. those things meant. Yeah. And, and signal to other people that they have such a strong knowledge of the material, such a strong mm -hmm. grasp, that they can manipulate these themes in new ways. Okay. But but they're still there placed with the mummy. Yes. In like on the wrappings, in the wrappings to transform them. Where where are they where are they found? They can be found in the wrappings, on top of the mummy, or in Potassocar Osiris figurines. Yeah. So oh, okay. figurines that are purposefully hollowed out to hold a papyrus. Yeah. That's cool. Right. So and that would then be placed some next to the coffin assemblage occasionally inside the assemblage if there's enough space but normally some somewhere next to the coffin assemblage so brings up a question of like audience like yeah who's seeing these and then so if you're trying to show off to your priest friends yeah or enemies frenemies um i know these weird esoteric texts but if you're putting them on the mummy or in a tomb mm -hmm. or something right they're not going to be visible so is it during the creation process yeah. Or during the funeral. Because these are like top secret things. Yeah. If if the ancient Egyptians didn't innovate to build trebuchets and and ramps to invade other city-states because they didn't really need to as much, mm -hmm. they certainly innovated, in my opinion, to create weapons of the mind. Mm -hmm. And so they didn't display all of this stuff. It's kind of like my work on 21st Dynasty mummies, which are so tricked out with expensive and valuable materials and craftsmanship. But who could see that? like half a dozen people at right. most. And for some of your papyri, it's such restricted, like secret witchcraft knowledge, you know, and, and I mean that seriously. That it exists. Yeah. You, 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 see it, you, just know. you would show it to other initiated priests potentially. And they would be like, yes, but the way, the manner of display is complicated. How do you, how do you see that? Right. So, so I think it goes back to the functions. And now I said there are two of them. So on the first level, that religious funerary level, I don't think that requires a large audience because that's religious knowledge meant for the deceased person, mm -hmm. right? It's that secondary function that these papyri have where I think the question of audience is huge, and that's the social function. 
So you're acquiring all this religious knowledge. The whole point is to show it off. But these are really restrictive objects. But you so can't I be like flaunting it because it's like not right. part of the natural decorum. The same way you can't so, flaunt a mummy. It's got to be wrapped yeah. for most audiences. Very few people get to see that unwrapped. So I think it has to do with almost like the performance of creation, right? That you have access to the craftsmen and the artists. Mm -hmm. You can share that knowledge with them. Perhaps they're bringing knowledge to you, but because of your elevated status within this priestly society, you have access to people with that knowledge. You know what kind of reminds me of? It's like when you're reading J.K. Rowling's Harry Potter and there's the restricted section mm -hmm. and that only certain people with certain levels of knowledge and ability are able to read the books in the restricted mm -hmm. section. Right. Or like Vatican libraries yeah. where you're only allowed to read the exorcism books <laughs> if you have certain skills. Exactly. And, and then who gets to go to there? The yeah. And just there. visually seeing someone enter yeah. that restricted mm -hmm. section yeah. or having someone be able to brag. Or Scientology exactly. Theta Level X or whatever. Exactly. Yeah, or even like, honestly, like when we teach the undergrads and we read something in glyphs to them, and they're mm -hmm. like, "Yeah, they know it can be read. They know it's a language and stuff." But then to have someone like do it in yeah. front of them, they're like, right. "Oh, like immediate like street cred." Yeah, like, whoa, you can actually do because it. you can participate in this exclusionary yeah, exactly. practice. Yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. Even though that's something that in many cases can be very visible. Yeah, right? most hieroglyphic mm -hmm. inscriptions are monumental, mm -hmm. and, and everyone, everyone would know. But they put it in plain sight. In such a complicated manner yes. with thousands of different signs such that you can look at it with a thousand other people and only one percent of the people can actually read it. Tell right. you what it says. It's yeah. such a clever social hierarchical yeah. trick. So it's almost like a social performance. It's mm -hmm. not that the object itself has the value where people brag about owning it. I think that's part of it. Mm -hmm. But I think it's also the performance of acquiring those types of documents and producing the religious knowledge that goes into them. Mm -hmm. um, now, whether that happened throughout a person's lifetime, at a discrete moment in their lifetime. Yeah. Because these are ordered in advance. They're commissioned, oh, right? Maybe. So that's a huge debate. Are these documents con commissioned? Or are they prefabricated? Yeah. You pull them off the shelf when you have the money, you fill yeah. in the name, you fill in the title. It depends the on the family. status of the person ordering. I think, I think the answer is both. Yeah. Right? I think, yes, there are cheap papyri mm -hmm. that are prefab yeah and you buy those you buy your book of the day exactly yeah so that, yeah that speaks to like someone who wants to be in the know but mm -hmm. doesn't know that needs to be like created anew yeah right. emulation used but but thing. then you know then there are the other people that can go all out because they have the knowledge they have the money they have the time right all of these things they, they create the curated and bespoke exactly. book of the dead yes. well, it's, like, it's, <laughs> it's couture lives. couture to order clothes yeah. versus off the rack yeah. but it goes beyond that too then there are the knockoffs yeah. mm -hmm. right then there are the purses that don't even try to be, <laughs> you know couture they an they're utilitarian yeah. right so like there's that whole spectrum you can that's a different art in a nutshell yeah exactly. it is handbag so that's like that that's hamburger that, statue yeah that, realize, right? that, like every object type that we have and can use um in our own lives as as a means of social expression you know the egyptians did the same exact things mm -hmm. um and we shouldn't forget that ever yeah. that this is all a form of social competition so yeah i so that's kind of like the second function that i mm -hmm. see and, but display is a huge issue. You know, it's like, were these things kept in domestic spaces at any point in time? Yeah. Where were coffins kept? Right? These coffins... They must have displayed them before death, of course. Somewhere. 
when and they or and they certainly ordered them before death, commissioned them before death. Yeah. But then where do they hang out? Like, yeah. They're fragile. Stuff, you know, you don't want fragile. them to be destroyed. You don't want. To and they're scarce. Papyri less so. Coffins are certainly scarce during the twenty first yes. dynasty. Okay. So much so that. Well, yeah, and you that's, had to protect that's those. one of the reasons why papyri became a thing, right, in the 21st dynasty. That's what part of what I argue in my dissertation is that because wood is so scarce, because new coffins are not being created, because coffins are being reused, mm -hmm. a lot of this religious imagery and these religious texts need to be put somewhere. Because you can't have a tomb chapel anymore, because then everyone will know where your burial chamber is and where your yeah. coffins are buried. You can't signal that, yeah. and you're losing all kinds of space to yeah. to give your transformational text so a papyrus is something yeah. that can, when unrolled can take up that space yes. and then when rolled can be hidden and then put into a, a secret space it's it's a very cost effective and defensive yes. mechanism for, for display you can't paint things on tomb walls you don't have tomb walls you have large caches yeah. where you're being hidden away and fresh papyrus is pretty hardy stuff. Yes. Do they unroll these things and like show it to an audience and then roll it back up? I mean, how does that in the coffin and put it in? Yeah. Yeah. Who knows? I mean, you can. It's it's a very easy material to manipulate. Mm -hmm. You can even once a papyrus is quote unquote finished, still add to it. Right. It's yeah. easy to wet the edge of yeah. papyrus and hammer on a new sheet. Yeah. yeah. Right. So these are documents that are truly. They can be. They're alive. They're, yeah. They're <laughs> they have like yeah. a whole Editable. life cycle. Yeah. You can, you know, which again, it's like a website. Yeah. <laughs> but it speaks yeah. to that type of social competition. Not a PDF. Yeah. 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 <laughs> it does. It does. You can you can continue to add to it as you gain religious add, knowledge. Or add glosses in the bar in the yeah. margins. Yeah. yeah. Mm -hmm. As you gain access to more artists, mm -hmm. uh, more money that can be spent on these things. And some of them were reused. Is that true? These papyri are less. Oh, you know, listen to the deep sigh. I know. You knew I was going to ask it. So yeah. yeah. No, I don't think we see a lot of reuse when it comes from um, reusing the papyrus itself as a funerary text. We'll see reused papyrus. Mm -hmm. So something that had an old contract on it, you can burnish the surface mm -hmm. to remove the old ink. Mm -hmm. So you can reuse essentially the paper, but I don't see reuse not gonna, like, of a Text. Taking out one name, putting it in a different You're not name. Seeing a reuse of a name, and, and that makes sense, right? Because papyrus as a material is much more plentiful. Mm -hmm. So you are compelled. Yes, you're not compelled to reuse it in the same way you are with mm -hmm. wooden coffins. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's super interesting. Mm -hmm. So, what were your, I guess, main conclusions from your dissertation? Yes. Yeah, so, so you looked at all these, you know, papyri, and you looked at titles, mm -hmm. gender. Um, Family, family, yeah, yeah, and yeah. I did look at, in terms of reuse, in terms of were the coffin sets that these mm. documents were associated with, how how did they affect reuse, or how did reuse affect? That explodes the, the study comparing yeah. the papyri to the coffins. It's yeah. huge. It well, yeah, because when you and there's a, a lot body, more, what you, what would you do with yeah. uh, it's papyri? Yeah, so no. there's a lot more to be done with that. But I think one of the most interesting and fundamental things is my data set was a perfect 50-50 split between <laughs> men and women. Huh. So and and that this is really happening for the first time in Egyptian history. Yeah, it's where, true. Where men and women mm -hmm. in the twenty first dynasty are being buried 
equally mm -hmm. by virtue of the type of funerarious image they have. So no more family tombs, mm -hmm. no more woman being buried with her husband. As a smaller subsidiary fi exactly. figure in no, his no. tomb. And being yeah. able to rely off of his funerary materials for her own transfer. She gets her own nesting set. She gets her yes. own papyrus set. She sometimes has more innovation, which we'll get to, and more yes. titles than he does. Mm -hmm. And I, I made this point in the, the book that I'm writing, Recycling for Death, right now, uh, but with regards to Stila. But of course you can say the same thing for papyri, that yes. now you have the woman standing alone in front of the gods. Yes. And you have that. It is for the first it time. It's 21st first dynasty. Time. So that yeah. was a really unique opportunity for me to study. And just how you said, oftentimes it's the woman that has more innovation. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe because she isn't restricted mm -hmm. to the traditions that the men found themselves being confined by. Like if a man breaks those rules, everyone's going to be like, why'd you do that? Yeah. You can't have this title and they will take him down like they stabbed yeah. Julius Caesar. Well, but if women, they give it to a chick, they're like, oh, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, women yeah. don't necessarily have the rules to break because yeah. they haven't been tasked with completing their own assemblage. And they don't have the same yeah, social... Restrictions. They don't have the same social foundation to use it to take other men down. Right. So yeah, so what I see in, in the papyri is in terms of that weird cosmographic content that I mentioned earlier that doesn't really fit any Book of the Dead or Book of the Hidden Chamber, like anything like that, mm -hmm. women are the ones that yeah. tend to have that more than the men. And they're not priests, priestesses themselves, right? They're depending on their husband's well institutional knowledge. Almost every woman during this time period has two titles, mm -hmm. mistress of the house and enchantress of honor. It's unclear what that means what it means. Did they actually serve a function within the temple? How dedicated were they to that kind of the Karnak temple complex? Able to read? Yeah, they're chanting yeah. something that you is know, potentially meant to be read. Yeah. Things on their papyri. Mm -hmm. Right. So we don't actually know if this was something more honorific yeah. or if it was something where they did go into that temple once a week or every yeah. day or like we have no idea. They were part of the like festival parade or something. Yeah. You know, we have no okay. idea what this actually meant in practice. Hmm. Um, but they are critically expressing a connection to the temple in the same way that their husbands, their fathers, everyone else Nobody in their else. family are. And that seems to be very important during mm -hmm. this time period because there's a lack of solid kingship in yeah. the 21st dynasty, families in particular want to attach themselves to a stable institution of some kind yep. because that helps with their own status within society. It helps when you talk about hereditary titles, mm -hmm. hereditary property, right, that you can stake a claim to. And so for the 21st dynasty, that was clearly the temple. So we see women utilizing temple titles much more mm -hmm. than we do in earlier time periods. I would compare it to maybe the first part of the United States where people connected themselves to certain men, like, oh, I'm in the camp of George uh, of George Washington, or I'm in this group with John Adams, or what, but it was more like a court system of communities. And then that develops as the United States develops into actual functioning institutions. You have an army that's functioning, you have um, other systems, and then- the Treasury. You, you think, yeah, and, and people, well, kind of, well, though Hamil Hamilton tried, <laughs> but anyway, but you, you have these systems, you have the, you know, then you have your Congress and other things, and then people are connected to that institution. Within the rules of the institution, there are rules you cannot break. Right. So there's a whole lot more flexibility in a court system. There's more ad hoc decision making. Within the institution, that institution controls you, and it's kind of like 
in the United States today, where people find maybe their most important place in the world is I work for UCLA. Mm -hmm. And you find yourself within this institution that grants you health care, social safety net, um, that your government is not going to provide you, nor your connections to other people. So your institution is the place where you can find strength in your identity. Mm -hmm. And we see the same thing. You mentioned institutions for the 21st yeah. dynasty. That's everything. Yeah. That Amen institution was exactly what allowed them to have coffins, papyri, and tombs that were protected at all. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, and it's it's what we say to academics, right? Try to keep that institutional presence in your mm -hmm. life. Try to keep that connection. Yep. So you see the same thing happening with this, this priesthood group. You question how many of them were devout with their religion. Yeah. You know, how many of them actually performed these types of religious duties within the temple but we certainly see them all flaunting that connection as much as possible. And the institution needed women as well as men. Yes. As opposed to that court ad hoc decision making, which excluded most of those women. Now this institution is like, you get to be a chantress and you get to be a chantress. Oh, yeah. And Boeing is like, you get to be an engineer and you get to be an engineer. And more people are included. It's, it's interesting the way that that can benefit the institution at large. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, because the other thing that's happening are these positions are becoming much more hereditary. Yeah. So when you have a very authoritarian king, that king gets to appoint people mm -hmm. to positions. Mm -hmm. People that he can have in his pocket. And create, per create purges. Create purges too. Pocket, yeah. Right? For Hatshepsut or Tawasrat exactly. or, yeah. Um, people that, that will be beneficial to that ruler for whatever reason. Yeah. And it's not assumed that your child will f follow in your footsteps and have that position. In the 21st dynasty, when we now no longer have that authoritarian king, especially in the South and Karnak, you get to be more inventive mm -hmm. with who gets these positions. First, first of all, what are the positions themselves? You get to be much more inventive and expansive in terms of the types of temple positions that are available. And then you get to decide, as your own elite society, who's going to inherit that. And so it's not a surprise. And the corporation helps you to decide. Yes. It helps to create the habitus for what's appropriate and what's not. To avoid too much nepotism, arguably. So it balances families vis-a-vis -vis other families. You get this, they get that. Yeah. And that's where women fall into it, right? Because if things are going to become more hereditary, giving the woman, the wife and the mother, a position and agency even if it's within the it was probably defensive right? it was it probably a defensive, defensive like oh we're not being political we're just going to give it to the chick it's going to be fine and and there's less there's less yeah. um pushback with something like that people depend upon the temple itself yeah right yeah yeah there's no other institution yeah so you know women get much more perceived agency mm -hmm. let's say i like that is it real Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> I, I highly doubt it. Um, but more perceived agency. And they do seem to run with it, though, mm -hmm. because women's titles within the temple, although they are being granted, are much more restrictive than men's, mm -hmm. right? Men get the first high priest of women, second, third, fourth, right? There's all this rank and nuance within men. And there's the treasury and there's a granary and there's the, the craft craft titles and there's so much. Mm -hmm. And women have less titles to choose from, right? So you can be a singer in the choir of Moot, you can be, you know, part of the 
the old term used to be harem of Kansu, and we, yeah. can, we can talk about that, right? Um, but uh, similar, like a choir of Kansu, it's a different word that they're the using. Hener, right? Yeah, the harem yeah. of Kansu. Um, we call them troop. Yeah, the troop. The the, the, yeah. But there's less to choose from, and there are less positions to be had for women. And so I think that's why they're more competitive with the content of their papyri. They Yeah. So we need something to distinguish myself and my family, right? Mm -hmm. This is never entirely about the individual. It's always about a a family, the hereditary nature of these titles, your position within this larger, larger Theban society, right? And so for women to showcase access to this restricted knowledge, um, even though my titles may not reflect might not seem that big. Yeah. yeah. How how much status I have. The fact that I'm including these texts that no one else even knows about. You know, and the fact that I have a coffin set that is in many ways superior to other women. Right? You know, it's like you can see these things start to build and develop. Compete in other ways. So women's papyri have more esoteric, let's say, content. They're also longer. Mm-hmm. On, like if you just measure them with a measuring tape, mm-hmm. there is more length to women's papyri. They're including more stuff. Um, I almost made a bad joke. Uh, (laughs) You were? Overcompensating. (laughs) There's so many jokes. Well, but who's making the papyri, right? And think of, um, I did a podcast last year where we were talking about handbags, kind of bringing us full (laughs) circle. And they're like, what's wrong with your man buying you a nice handbag? And I'm like, It's all, the handbag thing is all about the man buying it for you. And it's all this conspicuous consumption and display of something that's completely practical and yet impractical simultaneously. So it's like a gift that you don't buy for yourself. Same kind of thing with these papyri. They're being commissioned by their husbands, brothers, sons, fathers, and given to them. So this is part of a patriarchal display. Think of the father who has his, his daughter getting married and the amount of cash that we that highest echelons of society expect that father to spend for that wedding. Mm-hmm. And who is it reflecting on? Is it for her? Kind of not. Yeah, it's him. really not. It's for the father. How much I love you. Yeah, exactly. Whatever. But yeah. it's for his mm-hmm. his putting his best foot forward out in society. So that's that's kind I mean it's it's cynical. It's no, undercutting that I these love being <laughs> <laughs> thank God. Well so many Marissa, you know this. So many people who do women's studies and Egyptology and, and antiquity in general, when they see something that, that puts a woman into a position of power, they, they take it uncritically. Oh, she had this power. Rather than stepping back and saying, wait a minute, still a patriarchal system, last I checked. And so what is this, how is this a workaround for those dudes in charge? And how to, how, in the same way that more female professors in the humanities are taking over the humanities, why? Because it's become a shit job that no one wants. And so everyone's in STEM and humanities are being undercut right and left. Now they're gonna let the women in, whatever. Right. But I, I, we need a little more critical sense. I like here. the term perceived agency, mm-hmm. you know, or it's, it's agency within limits. You have X number of options available to you. It still shows her connections, but it's yeah. like she yeah. chooses. Is it for her? Is it for her? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and her. arguably, the, the, and, and one of the workarounds is, yes, it is for her on that funerary level. Yeah. Look how good of a husband I'm being yeah. by providing you yeah. with the knowledge, the sacred and religious knowledge needed to become an Osiris. And of course, it's a display of moral of patriarchy. Yes. That's, yeah. Of course you would want it. Yeah, yeah you're not going to say no to it. You can be like, yeah, I ex- or like, I expect you to do this. 
but patriarchy always wants to present itself as good yeah. and moral and kind and, and fatherly and benevolent, generous. Sometimes they'll crack down, but not on their own people. If on their own people, they can show themselves as this awesome, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, giving, loving dad, that's the way they're going to go. Right. This is the opportunity yeah. for them. Yeah. So we have papyri. Women are well represented. What else? Yeah. So in terms of titles, mm -hmm. You'll see a lot more being reflected than what can be put on the coffins, and we already talked about the space limitations for men and for women. For men and women, yes. What we also see then are other family members, normally previous generations being listed. Sometimes children, children who are still living and arguably benefiting from this social display at the funeral, even before the funeral, mm -hmm. as these objects are being commissioned. That's crazy because you don't see children yeah. in coffins hardly at all. Yeah. A king's son, maybe, and then otherwise, you know, maybe a girl here or there. In but there's almost no children yeah. represented. Where are the children? Yeah. <laughs> well, will. They are maybe. listed. So again, more space to do this. Yeah. Uh, more freedom, maybe in terms of formatting, right, mm -hmm. where you can include these things. And we'll see a lot of titles being transmitted from father to son through the generations. Okay. We also see the wonderful Egyptian trope. Of achieving more than your parents. So they'll list grandparents, great grandparents as having lesser titles than they did, <laughs> right? In every generation, you see, oh, yes, not only was I a Hemnetcher priest of Amun, I also got to be a gatekeeper of the door. But this is never stated directly, it's only stated indirectly. It's, it's never spelled out. In, in the types of um, biographies or autobiographies that we see in earlier time periods and in the tomb descriptions. Mm -hmm. It's just the titles being listed one after the other, right? So the great-grandfather will only have one title. Then the grandfather will have two. Then the father will have three. Then the deceased person will have four. It's so interesting. Right? And so you'll see this buildup, which is implied. And does he right? usually have all the previous three? Yes. So, wow. so you're reminding so much of like Elon Musk and Trump and all of them being like, mm -hmm. I'm a self-made man. And it's like, no, your daddy mm -hmm. gave you a loan or your daddy owns like some mine in South Africa. But you have to represent yourself that way so that it becomes about the individualism of your own capabilities. Right. Yeah. yeah and, and I wonder, when I was reading through this, I was wondering how many titles did the grandfather or great-grandfather have actually, actually. actually have <laughs> yeah. that aren't listed because those one. titles went to other children, mm -hmm. right? Yeah. If you had more than one yeah. son, maybe you had to divide these positions. So instead of showing a quote-unquote loss of titles through the generations because they went to another family yeah, member, you just eliminate them entirely. You're like, no, no, they were just described. Yeah, they were just this person. Hmm. Yeah. So it yeah, would be really, how much you can really trust. Yeah, it would be really great if we could reconstruct more. Yeah, uh, what images. titles each person actually had, mm -hmm. uh, but unfortunately, the data set isn't that complete. But yeah. I suspect that's what's happening. Mm -hmm. I was thinking that too. Yeah, like how accurate they really are. It's very cool, mm -hmm. and that it's all this kind of arena of display that we don't really understand the rules of. Uh, that, yeah. That's cool. Yeah, but I mean, but that's the whole point is trying to see if we can we can understand a little bit of that mindset. You know, what was going on that motivated these types of decisions being made? Because what we're left with ultimately is a bunch of decisions in their final form, mm -hmm. right? And we have to figure out what was that thought process? It was an ad hoc decision? What was yeah. the quorum? What was... That produced this yeah. violence or produced that coffin? It was pushing the envelope a little yeah. bit that yeah. made people go, mm. 
are you doing anything with your dissertation? Are you planning to publish or I have to make it a book? Ultimate goal. I have to make it a book, right? And I've been telling myself every summer for like the past three summers, this is the summer where I will do it. Um, I'm going to try, right? It's something I I need to revisit. Uh, The last talk I gave on this opened up a whole new can of worms because it was it's kind of like in the 11th hour of writing my dissertation, I realized over half of these papyri are actually unfinished. Mm. And I was like, oh no, oh, wait, no time to put that in the dissertation, make it's it a footnote. Thing. Um, and define but, unfinished, and what does that even mean? So unfinished, to me, it, none of them trail off in the middle of the sentence, Yeah, right? It's not that clear cut of a case. But a lot of them have very nice decorative borders yeah. around all four sides. And then about half do not. And that it has a border, and that border just trails off. It goes from a full polychrome border to just a lot outline, line drawing, and then sometimes the text spills over the border. Sometimes there's several inches of border with nothing, so like nothing inside it, just Mm -hmm. empty space. Um, You're kind of dealing, though, Marissa, with Egyptian art as a whole, and what is all the tombs I'm looking at? What's ever finished? Tombs are unfinished. So, but that brings up a whole, a whole set of questions about were these documents meant to to be to be continued to be worked right to be worked on as you gained more experience in the temple, as you gained access to additional artists, were you meant to incorporate more? Mm Uh, did you run out of money or time or it can't be material because the paints, the pigments, the papyrus itself, that's pretty but plentiful. Even if you run out of like money, you think you would still be like, okay, just finish the, finish the border, right? Was it a huge scam and people didn't know that they were being sold unfinished documents? Did you only, only unroll it so much, right? And say, I can't believe that. Show the buyer. Right, and be like, look at your beautiful document, and you just don't roll it out the whole way. Right, I mean, but, but it like, does mean the ends of the papyrus are less important than the middle of well, of the piece. The one end, the part that's called the etiquette, right, which is the part that has an image of the deceased worshiping Osiris mm-hmm. in particular. Sometimes Rehoboth, mostly Osiris, and sometimes it will include other deities like Isis and Nephthys. Yeah. Sometimes Thoth, right, but it's always that beginning Classic. etiquette of worship. That's always completed. Yeah. Always, always, always. So clearly start with now, that. sometimes it's clear to me that that was completed separately and attached to the rest of the document because the border is different. So you'll have a beginning etiquette with one type of border, let's say yellow and green. And then the rest of the document will have a completely different border of a different height. And now, now it's red and blue. Maybe and maybe the end is like where you are in the afterlife and you can't complete it, but then half yeah. of them are complete, so aren't is they? It a, yeah, that's what I thought too. Is yeah. this a metaphor for like yeah. the journey is not yet complete, but then yeah. does that mean the other half of the population had nothing left to learn? But the metaphor of the journey not being complete would, would explain why so many tombs are unfinished too. Right. It Coffins can. are not unfinished though. You know, they the, right. the, the nice commissioned 19th Dynasty coffin is finished. Yeah. So I don't know. I mean, it's so it's a big question for me. There's always a gradient to these types of things. So some are clearly unfinished, right? Yeah. That like just halfway through, it's now a line drawing. They didn't bother filling in the color. You know, sometimes it's like, well, the border spills over a little bit. Mm-hmm. So is that really unfinished or did they just not clean it up nicely? You know, yeah. like, did they just not draw they went from that last The master artisan to yeah. the training. And then, of course, another huge problem 
is how they are being preserved and displayed in museums today. Yeah. A lot were trimmed in modern times. Yeah. I God damn put them. Into frames. So yes. I can't tell whether they were complete or not. Yeah. Because rather than having eight or nine inches of just blank papyrus blank trailing off to nothing, yeah, they're not gonna... they just cut that and threw it away. Or put, put it in, in storage or something, left yeah. it in a drawer. Or yeah, it, yeah. Has, as you said, the etiquette. That's like yes. the pretty... That's the pretty... That's so the a, lot, yeah, and a lot of these papyri were cut into multiple pieces. Mm -hmm. Sometimes they are in different museum collections. So there, there's a lot of complicating factors. We'll never know how many were actually left unfinished because of that. Yeah. But it's something that I have to explore and deal with. I don't know if I'll have answers. But I need to address it. Yeah. That's your, that's your next project. So for the, the book, yeah. I would advise, and for anybody else who's listening to this who has a big project to finish, and they're like, because we, we have our jobs, we have our lives. There's only so much that you can do in a given day, but also there's only so much that willpower can make you do. Willpower is vastly overrated, and it, <laughs> it really, it doesn't, yeah. it's not going to help you. What's yeah. going to help you is creating a habit and creating expectations for which you will receive shame internally and externally if you don't deliver. So you have to now put yourself into a situation in which press A, B, or C is waiting for your manuscript because you have told them you will give it to them by a certain time. And they're like, oh, we've put it in our our catalog and said, oh, we want, you know, we're, we're advertising it already. And I like it that Jordan's as pouring the wine as, well, wine. you need to, because we're talking about like the I most know. stressful we're part of anything. Publication is the most stressful thing ever because you're putting yourself out there for the whole world to see, even if that world is only a hundred people reading your book in an academic setting, it's still mega stressful and, and makes you very vulnerable, but also never try to make it about your own willpower because you're going to just push it off, push it off, push it off. Like my coffins book. How long have I been working on this goddamn book? At least yeah. a decade, if not more. And there's always going to be more to do. Always more to put into it. But as soon as I work with the press, got the contract, told them I was going to get it by a particular date, and my copyright with the Egyptian like, Museum runs out at a certain time, then, so what you should do is go to Cairo, mm -hmm. get the permissions yeah. to publish these things. You have to get your book out. Yeah. You have to. Yeah, I mean, and I think the biggest thing to keep in mind is you are never going to write the end all. Mm -mm. It's not going to be and perfect. Never. Definitive thing. And you'll change and, your mind, and, and people, you'll have to re reframe that have it. That attitude mm -hmm. that feel like this is the final so publication, the final say on the subject. I have figured it out. Yeah, I have figured out this puzzle. You are so wrong. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, like, and so I never, I never want to have that attitude. And I think the best books, the, the best books that I've read are the ones that leave questions open, that have other avenues to explore and encourage that type of discussion to take place and that type of critical thinking that that still needs to happen on many different levels. Those are the best books by mm -hmm. far. So that's yeah. that's the only thing I'm aiming to and write. And you give ideas to new scholars. Yeah. To something that they can pursue. Exactly. This would make a great dissertation type of thing, right? Mm -hmm. like someone else can go explore this. And as you solve something or you can't solve something in the first book and you mull it over and people come back to you and you create that community of, of readership and, and cross-pollination, then your next article or book could be solving that problem. So you could create uh, the gift that keeps on giving by not trying to wrap it all up with a neat yeah. bow and taking 20 years to do it. We're totally going to pivot now. Awesome. <laughs> so we're not going to talk about your book. Okay. We'll pivot to something that's already been published and done. 
so less stress-inducing. Because I'm just getting stressed. I know it is. It's so stressful. I know. But make it joyful. Make it joyful and, and make it a game of catch in which you give you give away the responsibility, yeah. part of it, to somebody else who then helps you with that. Yeah. So that that's... Thinking yeah. about like truly what scholarship should be, like putting something yes. into the community, yeah. right? And building off each other. And... And, and again, just like never having that attitude of, I'm going to prove yeah. this or that. Like you're never going to get anywhere with that. I always, I always tell people the best position you can put yourself in is if you're asking a research question where if the answer is no, it's just as sexy as if the answer is yes, mm -hmm. right? If, if you say, you know, I want to see if there are gender disparities here. Yeah. If the answer is no, why? that could be really interesting. Yeah. And why is that the case? Mm -hmm. If the answer is yes, that's also really interesting. And why is that the case, mm -hmm. right? But never put yourself in a position where you're going to say, I'm going to prove that Book of the Dead 151 always shows up in tandem with the Book of the Hidden Chambers, you know, or trying seven, to, seven through eleven, you know, and you're never gonna. Or trying to find the hidden burial chamber of Amenhotep the first on the yes. top of the Gorn. I mean, you know, then you've really painted yourself into a corner. <laughs> this is Andrei Novinsky's work. If you don't know, you've painted yourself in a corner. You have to find it now. Um, and, and it's or just like, this key, quixotic sort of search. Right. Like be talk trying to prove certain chronologies mm -hmm. don't work. Mm -hmm. Exactly. You know, no. so, so don't, don't come don't at double it with down. that attitude. Yeah, exactly. And ask the right research question. Yeah. Be open. Ask a rich research question of nuance rather than yes or no kinds of questions or existence or non-existence kinds mm -hmm. of questions. Mm -hmm. yeah. So for the rest of today, we're going to focus on one of your recent articles, mm -hmm. Neith as legitimator, the Persian the religion, goddess Neith, the goddess Neith, yeah, um, the Persian religion strategy and Uja Hreznet. Um, so to give our audience some background, where are we in space time now? We're different space than your time. dissertation, right? Um, and who are the Achaemenid Persians, and what are they doing in Egypt? Yeah, so Egypt from the end of the third intermediate period into the late period. And that's a tricky time, right? People define it differently. Is it the 25th dynasty? Is it the 26th dynasty that starts the late period? We don't need to get down into those weeds. But there comes a time in Egyptian history where imperialism is now the buzzword of the day. Mm -hmm. And the Egyptians kind of fail miserably sure. at, at being the imperialist, right? So they are taken over by the Assyrians, by the Persians, by the Greeks, by the Romans, right? So, so by the Kushites first and the twenty fifth. Yes, yes, I'm going to put them in there. Let's yep. do it. You have to, because if it's about imperialism, the Kushites are imperializing Egypt. They don't control directly because they don't need to. They have all of their vassal states and kings to do it for them. So, I'll put the twenty fifth into the late period. Sure. Yeah. Um, so, we're at a time traditionally Egypt's twenty seventh dynasty is the dynasty that is taken over by the Achaemenid Persians, right? So coming from Persia, modern Iran, and taking over swaths of the, of, of the Near East, you know, into Egypt. Huge empire. Huge, huge empire. One of the, one of the biggest the ancient world has seen yeah. to this point, right? Yeah. If not the biggest, yeah, probably. And to try to figure out what it is, it's Alexander the Great's empire that he only yes. held for, yeah. you know, a decade or, or so. Yeah, and hold it. Couldn't hold but it. The Persians yeah. did the lay work before him, yeah. and then he essentially just took it all over yep. in parcel. So these Achaemenid Persian kings come into Egypt, and and what we see, interestingly enough, is that within Egypt, 
they become a model Egyptian pharaoh in terms of the art and architecture they leave behind, in terms of the types of monumental texts that they put on, and, and with you know some slight differences and tweaks, right? You'll always see those things if you look close enough. But for your everyday Egyptian and even your Egyptian elite, what they would be looking at would be your standard playing, Egyptian king. They're playing the part. They're playing that role, absolutely. Um, and part of that is figuring out how you fit in with little disruption to the religious and economic system mm -hmm. of the land that you're taking over. And so typically understood Persian religious policy, they're, you know, within the literature, it's always, oh, they're, they leave things alone. They usually leave, mm -hmm. you know, the religions intact. They're not going around, like, destroying temples or doing things like that. Like, oh, everyone has to convert to our ideology or things, right? Right. Yeah, scholars have typically defined it as, like, a very laissez-faire mm -hmm. attitude towards religion. And I'd like to challenge that a little bit. Yes, they leave a lot of religious institutions in place. They don't rock the boat. Yeah. But they do join in, in in very interesting ways. So, so like I said, you know, becoming that idealized Egyptian pharaoh, one of the primary functions of an Egyptian king is being the high priest of all the land, mm -hmm. right? So in theory, whether or not the Persian king subscribes to this religion in terms of his own personal belief, he is certainly portraying that yeah. to the Egyptian people, that he is going to be a good and beneficial high priest to them. He is going to continue the cults. He is going to continue to invest into the temples. So it's not just about leaving the temples alone to do their own thing. It's about showing that type of support so that mm -hmm. in return, the temples support the mm -hmm. king. And all of the workshops attached to the temples mm -hmm. support the king. And all the treasuries mm -hmm. attached to the temple support the king. But just that amount of participation means that he's going to change the religious system in elemental ways yes. that last going on into the next generations. Right. Well, you have the one example I liked that of the, the Temple at Hibis, mm -hmm. where you have the 700 Egyptian deities um, shown. And it's, I think that's a good encapsulation of the Persian ideology, right? They're like, I'm going to cover all my bases. Here's right. my understanding of Egyptian religion. Here's all the deities. Yes, and it's their understanding. It's not a wrong understanding. It's not a misinterpretation. Mm -hmm. Some scholars will say that. They're like, oh, they didn't understand what, what gods were supposed to be worshipped here, so they just threw them all in. Yeah. Right? So it's People say that. that? So I mean, some scholars have kind of Imply taken, that? Oh, weird. taken that impression mm -hmm. that like this is, like a, this is an elementary understanding of the Egyptian pantheon. We don't know where to place them, so let's just shove them all together on a single wall. Right? So it's not that. It's, you know, I think it's part of a, a Persian desire to order. Mm -hmm. um, part, part of a, a Persian religious system is very much about showcasing and exuding an ordered understanding mm -hmm. of your world, your physical world, the mythological pantheon that you're dealing with. And so I think that's what we're seeing here. I think it also could be reflective of the types of, of, of groups of people that they are maybe bringing to Hibis and yeah. other places in terms of perpetuating these yeah, religious cults. for an Egyptian audience or personally Right, Egypt, like exactly. And it's so, an oasis. Yeah, so I think it's showcasing a complete understanding of Egyptian religion and not an elementary understanding. Of they know it too well. Yes. Yeah. 
it's interesting though that the Persian, the the ancient Persians don't write as much text about their own religion, mm-hmm. but then when they get to Egypt, they they're ordering and understanding and categorizing all of the Egyptian divinities. It's a very colonial thing to do, a very imperialist thing to do. Like a, you know, like an anthropological like report, or mm-hmm. like a, you know, like when yeah. white people would go to the islands and like write all the details of right. the people that they were studying. Yeah. And and one, like an ethnography, that's the word. Yeah, 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 yeah. And if, if you look, ethnography. look hard enough, you will see that level of deep understanding more so than what other people maybe have picked up on. So yeah. Again, a lot of a lot of scholars will say, well, they're just replicating texts that they saw on other Egyptian temples. And to a certain extent, yes, p- part of Egyptian religion and the temple system is is replicating the appropriate texts in the appropriate places. The offering te- yeah, like <laughs> offering texts need to go in the right order in yeah. the right places. So we see patterns throughout Egyptian temples. Um, but if you actually read the specifics of what the Persians are leaving, one example is when they um, put the doors to the temples in Hittites and they mm-hmm. installed the doors. You'll get a lot of installation texts, essentially, um, that say, you know, this king donated these the, materials the bronze, to, to, to the bronze the to make the door and yeah. the cedar. And when they talk about the cedar, mm-hmm. they say cedar from the West. Yeah. I remember reading that in our in our Middle Egyptian right. class. Is yeah. that not fascinating? Because yeah. if you have your it's mental map, their west. it's their west, but it's mm-hmm. not west to Egypt. No. It's west of Egypt. <laughs> Sand. Yeah. And it's certainly not west of Hebus. No, no way. Yeah. West so. of, you've got the Sahara Desert, so there are no cedar trees no. growing there. So cedar to the west means Lebanon, but only because it's west escape. of Persia. Persia. So they are using, you know, a a complete, like you said, Middle Egyptian, a a very classical script. And they know that script and they understand it enough to not just copy texts without knowing the implications. But they are manipulating those texts to Mm -hmm. showcase that this is being done from a Persian mindset. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love that. It is a colonial inquisition. It's super interesting. Well, and they also had Egyptian helpers. Yeah like Ujak Resnet here. And so most of the the articles focuses on this statue you have from, it's now in the Vatican Museum mm-hmm. of Ujak Resnet. Um, and so who was he? And what role did he play in this Persian-Egyptian interaction in the government circles? Yeah. So he's a fascinating guy. He, he has- Great name. I know, great name, wonderful guy. Uh, <laughs> here. He, Oh, the the simple story that you'll often hear is that he is like a deserter. He's a traitor. He's a traitor, yeah. right? So he was serving the twenty sixth dynasty Egyptian kings, and then when the Persians came along, he literally jumped ship because he is he does have some naval titles, <laughs> right? So he literally jumped that ship and started serving the Persians. So that's kind of that, that's that's the old school narrative that you sometimes hear. Um, as if the 26th dynasty isn't a dynasty of Libyan immigrants, but who worked for the Assyrians, Assyrians. and were set up as a colonial puppet dynasty. But anyway, exactly. go ahead. Exactly. So we could even question who is quote unquote Egyptian at this point. Yes, right? absolutely. Um, as we should. 
But yeah, so so I think it's again, it's much more nuanced than that. Mm-hmm. Yes, he did. He had military functions under the twenty sixth dynasty king. He also had titles of a physician, you know, scribe. Every yeah. every elite person had titles of you know, a scribe at this point. Um, and then he does successfully navigate that tr- transition between the twenty sixth and twenty seventh dynasties, and and he serves. Um, the Persian kings, he, he serves Cambyses and then later Darius. So is it in the same way that when when Pia or Pianchi invades Egypt and moves up to the north and ever makes everyone on his great victory stela bow down to him and he lets them keep their Uraeus on their foreheads, um, they're all there as little kinglets in his imperial system. And he doesn't kick but a few of them out who actually openly rebel. They're the ones that are problem causing. Exactly. Otherwise, he lets them stay on the throne. He works with these collaborators. And and it's not a problem. This is... It's exactly. Yeah, so... Uh, and replace them all. It's so funny that we are so conditioned in our Western mindset to think Persians are bad and and problematic in comparison to the Greeks with your Herodotus or whatever else that you're reading, that we don't think the 25th dynasty has its own Egyptological racism embedded in it. We've already touched upon that already, but it's funny how the 26th dynasty does not and how the 27th dynasty, oh, how do we go to town in an anti-Persian assumption land saying that Uja Harezna is a total collaborator is working against his people when the same thing was happening for hundreds of years already as Egypt has been under imperial colonial rule. Like, yeah, you do. Family take care of, probably, yeah. Like, right. This is how people this, behave. This is what yeah. humans do. Right? It is. You're it is. See where, who has your bread, and you have to right. react in this situation of like super complex time of crazy turmoil. Who's leading? Who's in charge? And all this, you, you're going to make have to make those tough decisions that yeah. are going right. to piss some people off and, and get you marked traitor. And, and that's then, what that's what interests me the most. So as we were talking about, so who's we talked about his titles and all this stuff. So how did he interact with the Persian administration right. of Egypt? Because yeah. obviously he's not interacting with the Persian king. Well, maybe according to his bio, mm-hmm. he is. Right. But we have to take everything with a grain of salt. But that's one of the things that fascinates me most about him is like how we were saying, what were his social motivations in terms of maintaining his status with an Egyptian society that now has this Persian overlay, yeah. right? So what his main autobiographic text says about him is that when Cambyses took the throne of Egypt, mm-hmm. he was the one to provide the king with his titulary, his throne names. Mm-hmm. And which means the king couldn't have done it himself. He needed skilled priests to come up with these names in Egyptian for him. Supposedly so, right? That provide, they're... but like, as in what you're saying, like, knowing the ways yes. about it, or provide as in, like, coordinating the investiture ceremony and things like that. Probably potentially, both. Potentially both, okay. but there seems to be um, a desire to get the names right, mm-hmm. right? To, to show that you are knowledgeable of the Egyptian religious system mm-hmm. and the political system in such a way that you will pay homage to the kings of the past, but also show your new path forward. Mm-hmm. It would you know? be like if you're if you're choosing the name of the next king of England, because yes. they're born with one name, but then they have another name yes. that they're invested with. You probably wouldn't choose Edward, because the last Edward we had, you know, so he jaunted off into the sunset with, 
with uh, some exactly mm-hmm. American, Fran- American yes to France okay. but yeah, yeah but yes and so you would pick your name with that in mind and right. so yes these priests probably went into a deep meditation with the gods to try to come up with what the name should be but they also had a deep knowledge of what was appropriate and what would signal the right new beginning with the hefty dose of archaism to empower this guy yeah and so the his Ucha Hareznet's autobiography and we don't when we say autobiography we don't know if he actually wrote it although it's a text written in first person I did this about I him that. right um he does this in stages and in the first stage where he's first approached by Cambyses he calls him a foreign ruler he uses all of these terms that they're not derogatory but they are clearly indicating that he is not a true Egyptian mm-hmm. And then through Ujjit counsel, he provides him with the correct titles mm-hmm. and names that a good Egyptian king should have. And at every stage, the ways he addresses Cambyses becomes more and more Egyptian, mm-hmm. right? So then he becomes the king of all foreign lands, and then he becomes king of the two lands. And so uh, through this process of indoctrinating mm-hmm. Cambyses, um, which is orchestrated by Ujjit Bresnet. So he's putting himself in the center of this whole process. Mm-hmm. And he gives Cambyses his Egyptian titulary and in so doing teaches him about the ways of Egyptian religion. Mm-hmm. And that's where Neith comes into play. Yes, that was my next question, actually. So, like, who's Neith? Yes. Why is she important? So, so Neith is a goddess of the Egyptian pantheon. Depending on which Egyptian you ask at which time period, she may or may not be super important, right? Yep. Because what we know about Egyptian religion is that it's both regional and temporal. Creation myths change and develop through time. They are very regional in that one city center and one region will have one type of creation myth that focuses on their local deities, unsurprisingly. And if that region of Egypt is one that comes to power, suddenly those deities are also catapulted to power. And that's like what we saw in Thebes, right? So we were talking earlier about my dissertation. We kept talking about Amun. Amun Re is is the supreme deity. Mm -hmm. He was a local Theban god that for most of Egyptian history up to that point was relatively unimportant. But then when Thebes became a type of political and economic capital, it was never an official capital city of Egypt. But when it became that central hub, mm-hmm. suddenly Amun became all powerful and, and kind of the pinnacle of the Egyptian mythological system. And exported to other cities like yes. like Paramzis and to Tanis and to other and other places. So mm-hmm. yeah. Um and, and that makes sense, right? That as you become more economically and politically important as a region, you're going to export those other things like your specific culture and religion. And all that. Mm-hmm. Like so, NFL football. Yes, exactly. <laughs> so Neith so is a goddess that is um, particularly important in, in the north, mm-hmm. in the Memphite region. And the Persians knew that that was a critical city. And Sais. Yes, in Sais, in Memphis, they knew that these were critical cities to be able to control. 
And those cities were, for most of Egyptian history, because of their geographic location yeah. as being part of the Egyptian Delta, but at that apex of the Nile where mm -hmm. it starts to go into the Nile Valley, right? And so you're really unifying those two lands of mm -hmm. Egypt if you have control of that geographic space. So do we, being more global mm -hmm. with the Persian Empire, less focus is maybe put on Thebes because it's kind of down south, maybe not as important, or obviously important religious center for mm -hmm. Egyptians. Yes. But to the Persian Empire, mm -hmm. the more emphasis is put maybe more in the north. Yes. And emphasizing I think this so. more northern. I mean, Thebes is always, from the New Kingdom onward, really going to function kind of like a Vatican. Yeah, yeah, a religious right. center, a religious mm -hmm. center. burial center. They're always going to look to Thebes from the New Kingdom onward, but from that geographic perspective, you know, Sais, Memphis, those are areas that that the Persians are going to they're going to put more effort into economically, exactly. politically, more people. Fall, they'll fall into line. The Thebans will fall into line because they have to because they're geographically cut off from the rest of the Near East mm -hmm. if you're not going to go through that Delta area. Yeah. So that was the strategy put in place. So when Uta Hareznet schools Cambyses mm -hmm. on Egyptian religion, you know, I always look at it from a cynical, cynical mindset, right? That nothing is religion pure and simple. So when he tells him about the glory of me and the importance of Sais, he's saying there are treasuries here. There are workshops here. There are things attached to this temple of me that if you control this, you have a monopoly on the region. You have a monopoly on the religion. And so people will fall into line because of that. Mm -hmm. But you also control all of these other assets. And you're also trying to pull the cash of the new imperialists towards mm -hmm. your center versus I others. I was going to say, what right. does Ujjah Reznet get from this? Does he have connections at Sais? Absolutely. You know, he has those priestly ties to that temple. And so he is, for himself and his colleagues, creating a stable institution that's going to survive that transition from the 26th to 27th dynasties. You know, and so he's going to do everything in his power to keep himself, his family, and his colleagues in a position of power while simultaneously benefiting the new king. By saying, this is where you want to be. Mm -hmm. This is what you want to focus your time and attention and resources. Do you know what would be a good analogy? And I'm just thinking of this, and this isn't a time period I know a whole lot about. But 11th century William the Conqueror coming into England mm -hmm. from the south, from Normandy, and being introduced. It's not like it's, he's cut off from this world. It's just across the English Channel. It's not, a, it's not a long journey. So he knows it already. But then certain elites and, and dukes and I, you know, I don't know who are go going to come and visit. Some will cooperate, some will not. Um, and, and you'll quickly weed out who is with you and who is against you. But then you learn, oh... I need to pay more attention to Northumberland and less attention to Wessex or whatever. And again, this is not my area of expertise. But, you know, William the Conqueror is considered very English, yeah. right? E even though he brings in French as the court language and all kinds of things are changing elementally in terms of display and who's in and who's out. But but he's brought in and has those collaborators to teach him the rules. And then they blend and hybridize these different systems and put them together. It's not like they were completely 
separated in two different petri dishes before and it wouldn't have been the same thing with the persians and the egyptians either so then you blend them and you hybridize and it's all of the different collaborators or agents or or other elites that are the ones that are bringing this new leader of state from coming from a foreign place and and imposing his power and then introducing him to where they think he should go to their benefit so it's it's a it's a good analogy. Which I mean is your ultimate conclusion that Udra Hareznet is the I think quote as you have creator and manipulator of Persian identity, right? Yes. That he's like this key pivotal person mm -hmm. to I help. Mean, he claims to be the one that's entrusted with this. Yeah. Right. So he's benefiting from this narrative that he was the one that was so trusted and so beneficial to the king, right? Was it just him? Was it a group of people? You know, how big of a role did he actually have? We're never going to know those things. But I, I don't think it's ludicrous to say that the Persian kings turned to a group of Egyptian priests and advisors to essentially say, how do we lock this down? Mm -hmm. How do we get this done? How do I make sure that I'm accepted as an Egyptian king but I still retain, you know, a Persian identity mm -hmm. in all of this, right? But, but that locally, I am not rocking the boat in such a way that there will be an uprising, that there will be some sort of a revolt. And maintain yeah. the status quo from one set of elites of the 26th dynasty mm -hmm. into the 27th. So exactly. that you don't have a purge and have to have an elite replacement. Yes. You can keep most of the same guys mm -hmm. and keep the system going. Yeah. And I think that that's what they did. So I think Ujit Harasat was one of those men. Yeah. Um, he, I say what happened to him? Well, we he, know yeah. he just died when things were... He has home. a tomb, um, along with several other 27th Dynasty officials. Mm -hmm. um, At Saqqara. Yes. Yeah. He, he seems to have... Like everything was... Sur like I said, survive that 26-27 dynasty transition. So we have later revolt. Yes, advised Cambyses and Darius, and yes, he he. There there were some smaller revolts that did happen during Persian rule of Egypt. Cambyses did seem to help navigate those types of things between the reigns of Cambyses and Darius. Mm -hmm. um, his autobiography references these types of things where the temple was found to be in ruin and. Uh, the cults were not being maintained as they properly should. Just like the 25th dynasty, Pia, yes, Victory, exactly. Stila claims. The same type of Egyptian trope. Well, it's, mm -hmm. that goes back to the first intermediate period of, oh, everything's terrible, yes. and I came in and fixed it. It's an imperialist trope that yes. the Elgin marbles are only safe in the British Museum, and if they had laid there in Athens near the Parthenon, they would have been destroyed. So things are only safe in this particular way, so they come in and, and you know make things right again. Yeah. Because I know better. I know the way things should properly be done. Mm -hmm. And so Uter Crescent takes it upon himself to teach the Persian kings about how these things within the temple should be done. Mm -hmm. And he helps restore the temple to its former glory. And he helps restore the cults. And he invests in all of the craftsmen that are attached to the temple, which is an economic benefit yeah. to the Persian king. So they're on board with that, yeah. right? So, so these are the types of things that he has in his autobiography for both the reigns of Cambyses and Darius. Is there truth in it? We'll never know. It, it, it seems like, yes, during any type of political transition, 
there are times where you're going to have to reallocate your budget, right? We see every administration within the U.S. has this, you know, time where they have to reappoint people, they have to reallocate budgets, and they could easily have this narrative of, oh, our school system was in complete disarray, and then I came along yeah. and I corrected it. But there is disarray. Like, you just did have a coup yes. d'etat at the end of the 26th dynasty with Ahmose II, right, Amasis. So yeah. you, you do have that big shift in power, and that is when the Persians are able to swoop in and, and take control. Yeah. And it is true also that when an occupying force leaves, that colonialism is removed from a given system, that's when civil war, or at least uh, battles between elites is most yeah. likely to occur because one set of elites is fucked over the other set of elites. And then when the, it, exactly. So then when that, that imperial force leaves and that, that set of elites is trying to hold things down, the other can marshal all of the resentments of all of the years that they've, they've pushed down on this other group of elites. And then you have elites versus elites. And of course, that can, things can get ethnically oriented. Today, we see that in post-colonial um, situations. One wonders if it was like that in Egypt, where we have Greek, Egyptian, Libyan, um, Nubian. I mean, it's complicated, right? You wonder if that kind of thing came into play, but you don't really see it directly. No, I mean, because the, the people that are leaving the records are the ones that came down on the right side. Well, yeah. Right? Right. So that's, that's Alexander. Exactly. So that that's our complicating factor, too, is that Ujit Kresnat and other elites from this time period, and obviously the Persian kings themselves, are leaving a narrative of things were in disarray. Yeah, we don't get to see, like, you know, pockets of... Exactly. The 28th, 29th dynasty, 28th, 29th, 30th dynasty are these nativist, homegrown, we're more Egyptian than Egyptian, we're going to cast out all the foreigners and build a wall. It, it is very zeitgeisty of today, but it is very neo or, or I don't know, ancient nationalist, <laughs> proto-nationalist um, sort of rhetoric. And it is following on the 27th dynasty imperial very occupation. Cool. Right. And all of the Greek mercenaries coming in yeah. and settling during that time period, starting with the 26th and mm -hmm. in, in, in increasing in the 27th. So there's a whole lot of resentment. That would have just been a big, messy It would have been a big, messy, messy place. Yeah. <laughs> That's what we'll call the book. A big, messy, big messy, messy, place. messy, messy place. Yes. And that's, that's truly what was happening. Yeah, for sure. Well, I just think Uta always has been a fascinating. And I think yeah, it gets a bad, bad rap being yeah. a traitor like to think yeah. about putting your yourself in those situations of no people go right to Vichy phones and they're like oh look these are not these are Nazi collaborators yeah, <laughs> they like, go right there no maybe things weren't great in the previous regime and he's yeah. picking what's best for his, his situation right no I, I don't see him as a traitor uh, at all he's someone that clearly wanted to maintain his position within society yeah. I think most people uh, would have felt the same way mm -hmm. and he saw a mutually beneficial opportunity yeah. in advising these Persian kings. And maybe he and was bilingual we determined when we were reading the text. Is that true that there are sections mm -hmm. where he talks about, I remember Rahim Shaigan saying, who's a professor of ancient Iran, saying at one point that one of the phrases like standing at the right hand of the king or something, I can't remember what the phrase was, but that it could be translated exactly from the Persian into Egyptian. Do you remember this? Yes. So, well, it's very interesting because like we talked aphorisms. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. We talked about some nuances in, in the language that you can pick up you know, on Pibba's Temple and, you know, mm -hmm. 
the Lebanese cedar being west of, right? Yeah. And that can only be west of Persia proper. Um, we see the same things in Ujit Krasnod's autobiography, where he says that he stands at the side of a Persian king. Mm -hmm. And it's a compound preposition in Egyptian. This is all written okay. in, in largely Middle Egyptian. There's mm -hmm. some late Egyptianism, yeah. but largely it's a Middle Egyptian text. And he uses the correct compound preposition to say at the side of the king. Like from Persian to the Egyptian. Yes, and that yeah. is how you would describe your relationship to a Persian king if you were speaking in Old Persian. You would be at his side. Now, in Egypt proper, you would never really say that you were at the side of an Egyptian king. That would almost be an affront, mm -hmm. a kind of attack. Mm -hmm. You're coming at him from the side. You're not coming at him from head on in where back. you should be. Yeah, you should be embach yes, at be penis M level, bowing down. Yes. Yeah. And he uses Mbach when he talks about the previous 26th mm. dynasty kings. How interesting. And for those listening who don't know, Mbach is the M preposition, usually with a flat M rather than the owl M. And then there's a penis with a little stroke. And the penis is shorthand for the word Bach, but it essentially can mean at at penis level, like yes. you're bowing down, or like the king's dais is so high that your head is at a particular level that yeah, shows the, the hierarchical separation between the king and the rest of his elites. Right, yeah. So oh, he uses that for the 26th. He does. Ah. And so he, like, knows the code. That's a clear nuance. And Cambyses comes along and is like, no, no, I'm not all yeah. so fancy like you silly Egyptians. You can stand at my side. Yes, yeah, so like, <laughs> because to a yeah. Persian king, that was a position of honor. Yeah. To an Egyptian king, like I said, that would have been a bit of an affront, mm -hmm. a bit of an attack to be at the king's mm -hmm. side. You were never the king's equal. You could have a fan bearer of the king's right, but yes. you're holding the fan. You're standing a little behind him, giving him shade and looking out for people who could, your secret service. You're right. looking out for people, not today's yeah, secret right. service, but like, you know, old school secret service. Yeah, no one's leading their <laughs> no, one's, no one's trying to, you know, be yeah, helpers in a, in a coup. Yes. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, and so what got you, I think, working more into the mm -hmm. Persian period evidence is that you post PhD. I'm pivoting right here. It's a good segue. I segue. appreciate it. Well done. Um, you After you got your PhD, mm -hmm. you got a job at the Florida Food Center for yes. Iranian Studies at here at UCLA mm -hmm. and um, working more with Persian material evidence. So it gave you the opportunity then to look at this Persian period in Egypt. Um, yes. We went to Egypt, yeah. God, how many years ago now? It was COVID. in December 2019. 2019. Right before Three. the we pandemic, we, there was like about a group of 15 of us. Yeah. Yeah. We all got to go and look at some of the Persian material that's still in great. Egypt. Though I miss Suez. I was... Suez was good. I was sick. Suez was great. Suez was great, though. Mm -hmm. Beautiful town. Yes. We didn't go to the Oasis like we no, wanted to, we but I hear they're back open mm -hmm. now. Yeah. So perhaps, maybe. We have a, another future. trip ready to go. Um, December? I would hope so. That'd be a good time. We should actually, but for real, though, plan. Yeah, we really should. Plane tickets are, like, expensive. I just bought my ticket to Egypt. It wasn't so bad. Oh, really? Yeah. I got one for, how much was it, Amber? It was so cheap. So cheap. Oh, it's one way, though. So it would have been fourteen, fifteen hundred. But that's not the end of the world, no, no, right? Like two grand or no, 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 no. It was okay. And I could have, if, if, if price had been an issue, I could have gotten it cheaper. Yeah, so we should, that should be... We should definitely look into it. Um, so then what kind of drew you to this role? Um, we yeah. talked a lot about alt-ac, ac-adjacent. Yes. I feel like this feels fits more the ac-adjacent role. You're still within mm -hmm. academic job. 
Right. Um, but you're doing a lot more other stuff as well. So what kind of drew you towards this position? What does it allow you to do? On yeah. your, obviously, you're still publishing articles and still doing a lot of, you're still presenting at conferences and all this stuff. Yeah, I mean, first and foremost, a job, right? Yeah. So in this market, what drew me to it initially is it's a job. Necessity dr- drives yeah. us. And and at first, um, that that kind of was my primary motivation because the role that I'm in has morphed through time. Mm -hmm. Um, So I've been in this position for about, well, from the fall of 2018, you know, to now. You weren't always assistant director. You were more of an administrator first. Yes. Mm -hmm. So when I was hired by the center, the center was essentially brand new and the thing that they needed most was an administrator in terms of being able to build programming and you know pay the bills mm-hmm. get things done the day-to-day tasks that any center or department on a campus needs to do mm-hmm. figure so, out the budget figure out the spreadsheets yeah. figure out how to to deal with payroll all mm-hmm. of these different things exactly so it was you know and there was there's a lot of keeping your head above water and training of new things, skills that you never had to, never thought you'd need. Yeah. So coming from a grad student, you know, I knew to save my receipts when I went to a conference Mm -hmm. because they would get reimbursed. What I... (laughs) That's like the the, 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 the limit of it. Yeah. Yeah. I had to do research and stay really organized and like... Once They're I like, had, wait, I have to do this for like 80 yeah, people. Yeah. But once I handed those receipts to someone, I never knew what happened to them. So now in this new position, That's suddenly, <laughs> yes, suddenly I'm the one that has to say, okay, how do I navigate this university bureaucracy to make sure I get reimbursed and all of my colleagues that did something on behalf of the Portavid Center. You're training UC PATH too. Exactly. That's yes. horrible. Yeah. So I, you know, so there's this whole other dimension to the university that you don't see front facing. Mm-hmm. Right, as a student, and and to a large extent, even as a faculty member, that's not. I don't look at UC Path, but I hear the horror good. stories from all of yeah, you guys. Yes, yeah, so as an administrator, that is suddenly your function to make sure these day to day things run smoothly. Um, and the center was new, and so that's kind of where you were setting up. We we had to establish yeah. all of this before we could do anything, mm-hmm. right? And so then once once that kind of that once that foundation was laid, then we could say, okay, now as a center, what do we want to do in terms of programming and research? You know, so we have several lecture series that we manage where we bring scholars in to give either single lectures, sometimes even a series of lectures and workshops on very specialized topics. That's what you just did with Robert Rollinger. Yeah, yeah, it was great. Yeah, Yeah, he did five lectures, right? Well, he did four lectures over two weeks. I think it was very beneficial to both faculty and students alike. Uh, bringing him in from Austria. Cool have the same speaker. Yes. It felt like five you, you get to well, you, <laughs> you get to develop a bit of a rapport. You yeah. get yeah. to build off of the previous lecture. And he gets to write a book, in, yeah. a, yeah. in essence. Yeah. And, and the Portuguese Center will publish a book. Yeah. yeah, based on his talks. Right? No no pressure. But a scholar like Robert, he'll, he'll do it. it. He was great. He'll yeah. be great. Um, so, you know, so we, we do programming like that. We host conferences. We have a publication program that we are trying to do. And then, of course, so much to manage. Yes. 
Yeah, which is lot. which is why the center is expanding, right? And that's how I fell into the assistant director role. So that's different. Can I just say that one of the best things that anybody can do when they're trying to move into the, the real world, quote unquote, from the PhD yeah. is to go into a startup, an, an mm-hmm. academic startup in this case, mm-hmm. where you get to try on all the hats. It's kind of exhausting, yes. but somebody who's able to do it, like you, mm-hmm. you learn budgeting, you learn event planning, you learn... Um, how to put a symposium together. You learn publication. You, you've learned how to find videographers in different cities right. and hire them. And then you do, you have a whole videography. If you, anyone listening to this, go to the Port of Oud Center for the Study of the Ancient Iranian World. And like, there's a whole videography, video yes. library of talks. Yeah, we have close to a hundred videos now professionally recorded. And they're and so edited. good. And you put the PowerPoint up and you, yeah. and you learned editing. Yes. I and, mean, it's crazy. You know, faculty from universities throughout the U.S. and in Europe have told me they've used them in their classes. Of course. It, it, it's it's an great, educational contribution. Yeah, it's a great resource. Yeah. But that's, that's... But you've had to learn so much. Right. But but so that goes back to my first comment, I think, that I made where I'm like, initially, this was a job out of necessity. Mm-hmm. But it has grown into an actual career. Mm-hmm. Right? Because of the, the growth of the Port of Food Center in general, the fact that I had the opportunity to transition into a more academic-facing job once I learned yeah, all of the administrative and tasks. It feels like you're being challenged. It's not something you're like, I'm yeah. bored. And oh, she's never bored. No. She's always like so barely no. holding on. But it, it's all it's all, and I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean no, you always have is. to learn a new thing. No, exactly. I mean, and, and so as the center grows, I'm able to grow with it, mm-hmm. and that's really important to me. And it is something that I can see as a career now. Okay. And it, you know, as we're able to hire more people to have more specialized subfields within this i'm able to dedicate more time to research Mm -hmm. and so one of the things that connects egypt and persia we just talked about egypt resident and all of that is building a more substantial research consortium that focuses on persian egypt which is very understudied yes very understudied and we have two grad students who are here Mm -hmm. now and you can serve on both who do persia and egypt you can serve on their committees absolutely yeah yeah and and we want to see more of that crossover there's there's very few scholars and and i'm one of i don't know any old persian Mm -hmm. right and maybe that's something i'll be able to do in the future but there's few scholars that can do language from both sides Mm -hmm. Right, and and that's something that our grad students now yeah. are are really focusing on. So they will be they will be some of the first. Yeah, they'll be unicorn scholars <laughs> that are equally capable of addressing the Egyptian and Persian right. literary records. Yeah, and we're talking about Hong yeah. Yu Chen and Elizabeth Koch in yes. particular, and mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and so that's going to be mm-hmm. great that they are getting that specialized training in both fields, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, really just try to foster that type of research connection mm-hmm. between people that do a Kemenid Persia and then people that study late period Egypt yep. and, and realizing that these are not two separate fields that are divided by some glass wall where we can see each other but not hear one another, you know, but, but really break that down so that we can have a good discussion. It's the same for... For Roman Egypt, where you see people who have these amazing kick-ass demotic skills, mm-hmm. and they're one half of papyrology, and then you have the other people who do Greek and some and Latin from a classics perspective, and they're the other part of papyrology or art historically. You've got the people who do Roman Egypt art historically, and those who do Rome and are trained as classicists. And it's very hard to to find somebody who's trained in both. Uh, very very difficult. That's, that's a lot of. Time. It's a lot of training. Yeah. You know, you have to have a 
program that mm-hmm. had more options available. And two advisors for for Young Hong Yu Chen and Elizabeth Koch. I'm co-advisor with Raheem Shayagan. So you need two people who are willing to play nicely together in the sandbox and not throw sand in each other's eyes, which does not always exist. I know. You need to pick one. No. Yeah. No, you need to do one. Well, it can easily become the work of two separate PhDs. Yeah, Yeah, it can. Right. It can be an issue. We're we're dealing with it, aren't we? Yeah, we are. That's how the advisors are critical. Yeah. Advisors that can work together. Focus on like what's important. Okay, you don't need to know that yeah yeah Yeah. you don't know that part of or this because there's so many different language sub subspecies if you like for egypt and for persian um then you have to say okay focus on these languages and those languages but you can't do them all maybe as time goes on you'll be able to concentrate more on middle persian or something but or old egyptian but not now focus on these and then we go yeah 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 Yeah. Pretty nasty Egypt, maybe that well. <laughs> no, exactly. no, exactly. That's a different beast. Entirely, yeah, exactly. So. so that's great. So, so hopefully, maybe some more free time, quote unquote, mm-hmm. coming through in the future. Do you have any special projects? We'll end on this note. Something light. Any special projects? Maybe we'll be going back to Egypt. Hopefully, in December. Yeah, I would love to take everyone back to Egypt. Not everyone. Not small group. Every small group. group. That was like a giant tour bus right. of a group, and yes. we love them all. But it was so big, we were not nimble. There was no, there was no nimbleness. No. So, so we'll take a specialized focused. group back to Egypt. We really want right. to. I mean, one of the most fundamental goals is to really get a solid, solid grasp of the material record and textual record from the twenty seventh dynasty in Egypt. And and a problem with that is a lot of material has been assigned to other dynasties, to other yeah. time periods. 26, 28. Mm-hmm. If it's ugly, it's this one. Mm-hmm. If it's pretty, it's If it's this ugly, one. 28. If it's yeah. too nice, 26. Yeah. If there's, I think it's probably the biggest shortcoming mm-hmm. in all of Egyptian art history studies. Yeah. Is not accurately dated. So it's like late period. Yeah. yeah. All so kinds of assumptions. Yeah. You know, and, and so we really need to revive, you know, I read a, a recent publication that's essentially said there were no books of the dead <laughs> written in the 27th dynasty. What BS? From, People didn't die. There, there was none. No one died. <laughs> from the 26th dynasty, it wasn't then used again until the 30th. No one died. Oh my God. They just lost the, their whole religion, know, their afterlife. Exactly. They did not suddenly shelve this and say, let's not use it. And then we're only worshiping Ahura Mazda. Yeah. Right. And then magically pick it up later That's and awesome. say, let's start using this again. Right. That's not how things are just as organic and messy as they are in our lives today, right? So you can't, you you cannot compartmentalize no. things like that. Um, but our assumptions are very real when dealing with the 27th yeah. dynasty, I have found. So it's it's yeah. an interesting time to work it within. Yeah. Reverse. Yeah. And deconstruct those and yeah. then build up something new and actually worthwhile and something that can be right. worked with and exactly so i think that's the most immediate goal is to just reassess what what evidence do we actually have? who are we working with yeah. and then from there we shall make need some museum trips as well yes. probably mm-hmm. i think so and and one of the other things that is another shortcoming of egyptology in general is separating text from materiality yeah, i agree um a lot of times you will get monuments entire temples and sites published without much reference to text. And then you'll get the texts published as if 
they are written on a computer yeah, and not on an actual object that is yeah. in some museum or in situ in some mm -hmm. site in Egypt, right? And so that's the other thing that we need to do is unite those two yes. lines of evidence. Digital technologies will be amazing for that. Exactly. Just reading the statue inscribed for Uja Herezna, reading the autobiography on the statue yeah. and reading where things were on the front, mm -hmm. on his lap, on the side, on the back, it was meaningful. Yes. And of course, there there are Egyptologists who have done, Elizabeth Froude, for instance, who have done this kind of work, mm -hmm. um, Michael Chen, um, but but more, you know, for this yeah. time period, it's super important. And yeah. when you go into a temple, and there, there's more of this because temples are so, we, we, we inherently situate ourselves within space as opposed to a statue where if we take the test, we, text, we might blend it out. But you can still remove a text from a temple and and it's not, not like point it's out the west face of the wall like, exactly that doesn't help like, like, it doesn't help okay, totally I'm agree like, to, like, picture it but i need to like yeah. either be there but i can imagine a digital hebus right where yeah, you can yeah, click yeah, on and things and it, it, it yes yes spatially yeah. where are texts in relationship to one another or what? like if you're just tiny five foot person like what are you actually seeing and if there's That's a big festival and there's a big crowd of people yeah. what's your sight line exactly yeah yeah. You know, and Barbara Richter has done a lot of work with mm -hmm. that. What's what's on a shared temple wall? What's across yeah. from it? What's you know, if you're thinking in terms of procession, what are you seeing on your left versus mm -hmm. your right? Are there any connections between those texts? Yeah, why you, you know, in these spots? And and so I think that that's something that needs to be done in orientation oh, yeah. to cardinal points, orientation mm -hmm. to is there orientation yeah. to Persia? What, what can you Don't see know. through a doorway or yeah. a gateway? What's visible before you even enter that next space versus what is hidden? Yeah, or light lighting. Like, is yeah. it dark? Is it light? You know, or do you even see the lips and yeah. raking light? And, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, so I mean, so all of those questions need to be addressed in Egyptology in general, yeah. but specifically in the Persian period, too. You know, I think little work has been done yeah. on the monuments that have actually been left. Mm -hmm. Uh, by the 27th yeah, or the monuments that were there in the 26th and clearly picked up again yes. in the 28th it's not like the 27th nothing happened you, if you've got like an opet temple or something like that where you know that there is a 26th dynasty beginning and then it, it continues through the late period what was happening during the 27th there's a lot of things that one could do and things that could have been started by the persians and then we know from the 25th dynasty all you have to do is pop out a cartouche and put a new one in it looks like a 26th dynasty building right exactly so i'm sure there's more karnak material that could be where a 27th dynasty could be inserted in terms of agency into those buildings let's throw alexander the great into that mix exactly right we know that he had a habit of utilizing what the persians left behind right so we know he took their entire empire he took their monuments he built in the same spaces that they so what does that mean for luxor temple in particular and that alexander stopped it probably was persian and he also and not just the persians but he looked to earlier times in egyptian history tutmosis the third who was a warrior pharaoh he saw himself in that king he used his horus corselet i we're convinced we figured this out when we were in I don't know if you were there, but we were there no, looking there. at certain things. And I'm like, Raheem, look at that corslet yeah. of Tutmos III. That's what Alexander the Great picks up. And he picks up the horns of, of Amun that go mm -hmm. around. And all of these things are, are an 18th yeah. dynasty yes. Thutmuzid thing that he pulls in. Is there a Persian um, pre-existing claim? Or is that only Alex that's doing that? Right. I like to call him Alex. Yeah. Um, but, you know. Yeah, yeah. But yeah, no, I mean, so, <laughs> so we know he, he has this tendency 
yeah. it, it makes sense, right? You, you harken back to one of the most. Well, he didn't rule Egypt for that long, so it's right. like he definitely was just like, yeah, do what they were yeah. doing. You use the my stuff name in there. there. Yeah. So when you see spaces of Tutmosis the Third, when you see spaces that are Persian. You know Alexander probably touched that. Yeah. And if you can't see Tutmosis the Third or the Persians, but you can see Alexander, it's probably there somewhere yeah. too, right? Um, but he probably had his own Gaharesmet that yes. was informing him of the country and how best to and they were probably like, Yeah, just go through all the places of the Persian and just mm -hmm. carve out his name and put your name in and Oh, you like T three? Yeah, he was great. Like we'll put you in his corselet and all that kind of stuff. Oh my exactly. goodness, you can imagine, can't Probably you? Probably just, yeah. they're like, yeah, like give us some money, we'll make it happen. And all of the coins that show Alexander with the ram's horn going around his ear, it's um, it's Egyptian. It's a beautiful yeah. new kingdom mm -hmm. thing. Yeah. You know, it's, and that makes sense. And they're not the only kings to do that. We know every king that had, had some model or some ideal yeah, that they were always harping back to, yeah. you know. Um, we just have to follow the breadcrumbs. The other thing I will say, and then I let Jordan um, take it away, but like the, the, that Alexander needed it more. He needed the profundity of kingship that Egypt could grant, that only Egypt in some ways could grant. Sure. The same way that Julius Caesar wanted it and got killed for it and Mark Antony was attracted to it. But but Alex was like, you know, I'm going to go to the Sea Oasis Shrine and Oracle and get my prophecy, get my foundational underpinning of kingship. And Cambyses or Darius, they're like, Cyrus, they're like, what before him? But they're like, they don't need that kind of thing. And that's why the one statue that we have of, it is Darius, right? In, yes. From Persepolis. Mm -hmm. Shows him in a Persian form, standing on top of an Egyptian a construct of different peoples and places with Egyptian iconography, but he's there as a Persian king because he right. doesn't need, no. and he's exhibiting that he doesn't need to Egyptianize. He doesn't need anything from those Egyptians the way these others do. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's cool too. It was so much fun. It was, it was great. I loved it. It was great. It was so good joining us today. I'm sure we'll have you back at some other point. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. I'll let you take us out with our, I think that's it. This is Afterlives of Ancient Egypt with Kara Cooney. <laughs> and Marissa. Oh, I guess, yes. And Marissa Stevens. Exactly. And Jordan Kalzinski. Thanks, y'all. It was super fun. Now we'll, we'll drink some more wine and hang out and yeah. eat and chat about things that we can't put on podcasts. Yeah. yeah. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you to our listeners for your support and for subscribing wherever you listen. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with others and leave us a five-star review. Send us your questions related to the show and topic suggestions for future episodes to karakuni at gmail.com. You can find the show notes in the podcast section of my website, karakuniegyptologist.com. For that, thank you, Amber Myers-Wells. There you'll also find info on my books and upcoming lectures. While you're there, don't forget to sign up for my newsletter to keep up on the latest news and content from me. Check out the conversations that happen after the podcast mic is turned off by subscribing to our Substack After Lives After Party. You can find me on Facebook at Kara Cooney Egyptologist and on Twitter and Instagram at Kara Cooney. See you next time on After Lives with Kara Cooney.